This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. From what we know of Valentinus' second century treatise, The Gospel of Truth, the work is characterized by a key theme of enlightenment. The human being lives out an existence marked by confusion and ignorance regarding God and bound by suffering. The purpose of the revelation of God in Christ is to deliver men from this situation. Of course, there are other quite striking elements of Valentinus' argument that depart from the teachings of the New Testament. The enlightenment in question is one of liberation from the constraints of a material corporeal living, so that the truth of who Christ is implies dissociation from the material world. Second, Valentinus seems to have embarked on a complex theory of social theodicy, explaining the origins of evil in the world from a pre-existent fall or rupture that took place in the, in the dyadic structures of the divinity, a Godhead marked by complexity, and ironically, as Origen pointed out, something like material constitution, subject to political unity, then eventual rupture, followed by reconciliation and reconstitution. A central point of Valentinus's argument seems to be the idea that material existence mitigates against the plausibility of God's singular incarnation in history. If life in the body leads to suffering and limitation of knowledge, then it is in no way fitting that God should take on a material existence. It is precisely this that we hope we might, uh, he might deliver us from. We find the idea posed in contemporary theology, but wed to an almost contrary associative points. For Valentinus, enlightenment occurs only for the Gnostics who are predestined, not for those characterized by more world-bound or animalistic attitudes encased in material existence. It's not a universal phenomenon. By contrast, a figure like John Hick wishes to dissociate the saving work of enlightenment from the particularity of the Incarnation, precisely so as to emphasize the universality of salvation. Any distinctively Christian salvation is too materially particular, and so we need a universalism that is not overly determined by the material conditions of any one religious tradition. Here, material particularity is not evil, but it does delimit the possibility of universal truth and revelation by framing the knowledge of God within the constraints of a given historical time and place. The diverse religious traditions provide distinct paths up the mountain to God, or the absolute, so to speak, but none of them in their historical singularity can be said to be a fully adequate sign or indication of the presence of God in history. Likewise, if theodicy, in, in, if the, if theodicy in God is a theme in Valentinus, we might characterize a form of modern religious pluralistic theory as speculative agnostic, agnosticism. There is no one way to address the problem of suffering and evil, and in the face of the enigmas of being, all theoretical systems fail. No word of address is final, but rather each religious tradition provides ideas that are provisional and hypothetical. Karma, purgatory, final judgment, nirvana, beatific vision, cycles of rebirth, resurrection. These eschatological notions are not interchangeable, but are mutually convergent in some respects, even as they diverge in other ways showing the provisionality and limitation of each. Both the older Gnosticism, with its more distinctive mistrust of the ontological goodness of a material incarnation, and the newer non-incarnational theologies of religious pluralism, demonstrate a shared concern that the singular event of the incarnation is something other than truly enlightening and universal in its scope of illumination. 
Aquinas is in fact quite sympathetic to these concerns for at least two reasons. First, because of his engagement as a Dominican with Albigensianism and its Manichaeanism sources, Manichaean sources, in view of which Aquinas frequently addresses Manichaean and Gnostic ideas of various sorts directly. Why is it fitting that God should take on a human nature, including a physical body? Second, he was aware of the philosophical ramifications of the claim that the most universal science of the divine is provided ultimately by means of revelation, not metaphysics. The incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ are contingent events of history that provide universal knowledge of the first cause as Trinity. The knowledge is universal in the sense that the cause revealed, the Holy Trinity, is the first origin of all that is, and knowledge of this cause casts a light upon all that proceeds in creation from God. If this is true, then because God has become human, we can come to know who God is in himself as Trinity. But by a kind of epistemological corollary, this entails that philosophy as such cannot procure perfect knowledge of God as first cause, and so must be able to admit its limitations and even its intrinsic openness to divine revelation from within. In what follows, I would like to explore briefly two related ideas. Why, according to St. Thomas, did God become human? And how does the harmonization of God reveal the Trinity as the ultimate explanatory truth about reality? Part one, the motives of the incarnation. When Aquinas begins his treatment of the motives of the incarnation in the sentences commentary, he initially asks whether it is possible for God to become human and then asks whether it is fitting. The answer is both, uh, to both affirmations is affirmative, but it's significant that the framing of the analysis in this order of questioning suggests that the incarnation is intelligible according to an order of wisdom. God become, became human not simply because he could do so voluntaristically, but precisely for a fitting motive. Consequently, there is an intrinsic intelligibility to the divine motives that the church can consider theologically and explain in a universal format available to all men through divine revelation. In Summa Theologiae Tertia Parts Question 1, Article 1, Objections 2 and 3, Aquinas considers at least two Gnostic objections to the fittingness of the Incarnation. One stems from the reality of the divine infinity and the finitude of human flesh. God cannot fittingly join what transcends creation infinitely to what is merely finite. The other objection, the other objection is straightforward. God is sovereignly good, and the flesh is, by comparison to God, a principle of evil, or privation of the good, so God cannot wisely take on human flesh. Aquinas roots his response to these objections by referring to the intelligibility of the divine goodness. It is proper to the good to be diffusive of self, to communicate or to give of its goodness to others. But God is infinite goodness. God communicates the truth of who he is as creator precisely through the medium of visible creatures. Therefore, despite his transcendent dignity, or perhaps because of it, it is not unfitting for him to communicate his divine life to us by becoming human, which is the most perfect way for God to manifest himself within the visible world. Furthermore, it is an error to characterize material existence in terms of the pure privation of evil. God creates all things in wisdom and in view of his own goodness, so the physical world and temporal existence in the body are inherently good. It is true that there are natural evils or privations of punishment that afflict us and are quite serious but these fall within the scope of God's justice and mercy, or they stem from divine permissions, which are reflections of his divine goodness. Such punishments in the body originate in response to the evil of creaturely fault, but these faults themselves, voluntary moral defects in men and angels, stem not from God himself, but from the spiritual creature withdrawing from the order of justice and mercy, that is to say, from the goodness of God.
Aquinas then proceeds to explore the intrinsic intelligibility of the divine goodness manifest in the incarnation in question one, article two. When discussing the core motives of the incarnation, he creates two tables, as it were, of analysis, one pertaining to the advancement of men in the good and the other to their withdrawal from evil. Divinization and atonement are the two core aims of redemption. God becomes human in order that men might be united to God, and also so that God as man might reconcile the human race to himself by making fitting satisfactio for the sins of the human race, reordering us towards God in justice. Here indeed we see emerge the, the theme of the incarnation as a distinctive form of universal enlightenment. The first reason Aquinas gives for the fittingness of the incarnation in the order of the advancement toward the good is related to knowledge, enlightenment. Divinization is characterized first and foremost by our union with the divine truth. Aquinas cites Augustine, in order that man might journey more truth, trustfully towards the truth, the truth itself, the Son of God, having assumed a human nature established and founded faith. The incarnation enlightens us by making knowledge of the absolute truth of God more secure and trustworthy within history, a point we will return to below. Similarly, Aquinas argues that the love of God is made manifest in a more intensive way in virtue of God, the incarnation of God. We see in the Christ child the most concrete expression of the love of God for men. This is a theme that evidently can be developed in referring to the passion and resurrection of Christ in turn. Finally, Aquinas notes that in the life of Christ, it is God himself who provides us with an eminently human example of instruction in how to live in the light of grace in view of God. In treating the second table of reasons, the withdrawal of man from evil, Aquinas also applies, appeals to themes of illumination. God became human to liberate man from the power of evil and to atone for human sin. Working from within this Anselmian line of reflection, St. Thomas notes that the incarnation teaches fallen human beings their dignity because God deigned to become human, so human existence is especially meaningful and worthy of respect. The superstition of excessive worship of and reference to angels is dispelled as men realize that they are directly related to God by a man, Jesus Christ, and not through subjugation to heavenly powers or spirits. The incarnation also teaches us humility because he who, is incomprehensi who incomprehensibly transcends all creation took the initiative of condescension to live in solidarity with we who are the frailest of spiritual beings. Those who are truly greatest help those who are weaker. And the incarnation shows forth the justice of God as he can reorder or justify the human race from within by way of atonement so that the frailty of Christ crucified becomes the venue or place of the manifestation of creative restoration and the making of all things new. From God's human life among us, we learn what both divine and human righteousness truly are. My argument up to this point has been that the incarnation is illuminative for Aquinas precisely due to the ways God's human life can illustrate the divine goodness and its effects, principally by effectuating our union with God and our withdrawal from evil. The incarnation has a motive that is universally intelligible and wise and that turns our gaze towards the goodness of God. In what follows, I'd like to concentrate on the hypostatic union as such and consider various ways that the harmonization of God provides the deepest form of illumination available to men regarding the inner identity of God as Holy Trinity. The ontology of the hypostatic union is revelatory of the Holy Trinity. The apostolic teaching of the New Testament asserts that the eternal Son of God, who is the eternal Logos and image of the Father, has become human in time. In 431 AD, at the Council of Ephesus, the Church identified the core mystery of the homonization of the Son to consist in what Catholic theology traditionally terms the hypostatic union. 
the union of the human nature of Jesus with his divine nature in the very person of the eternal Son made man. There is one concrete personal subject in Christ, who is the Word made flesh. When you touch the hand of Christ, you literally touch the hand of God, because this man is indeed the Word and Son of God, subsisting in a human nature, having a true human body and soul. When Aquinas reflects on the hypostatic union, he notes that, formally speaking, it is only the Son who has become human, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, this harmonization of the Son as such reveals the Holy Trinity in various ways. Let us consider some of these in turn. First, we might think of the Trinitarian modus for the incarnation of the Son as such. It is true that Aquinas asks in question 3, article 5, whether one of the other Trinitarian persons could have become human instead of the Son, and he answers affirmatively, it was possible. This has been much misunderstood in the wake of Karl Rahner's claim that this kind of hypothetical counterfactual Thomistic theology fails to see the essentially filial character of the incarnation and of the creation more generally. However, Rahner initiates a critical misreading of Aquinas on this point. In fact, as with the questions of the incarnation of the sentences, here Aquinas is considering the non-necessity of the incarnation of the Son. Something else was indeed possible. So as to show in question 3, article 8, why the incarnation of the Son is deeply fitting precisely for Trinitarian reasons. Nor is the question of the possibility of the incarnation of another person merely a logical thought experiment. It is precisely because the Son is God, that he is one with the Father and the Spirit, who being identically God in essence are equally omnipotently capable of being human. If the Son were not God, then his incarnation would not unite us to God as such, but only to a created intermediary. Otherwise stated, unless the Son is truly one in being, consubstantial with the Father and the Spirit, who precisely as God must have the power to incarnate, then he cannot truly be he who is both God and man, and so he cannot really unite divine and divinity and humanity in his person. Aquinas gives three reasons, however, of fittingness for the incarnation of the Son as such. One is Trinitarian. God the Father creates all things through the eternal word and wisdom, who is, as it were, the eternal pre-existent model and exemplar of all created being. So, it is fitting that the world should be recreated through the medium of the humanity of the word made flesh, so that the works of creation and redemption manifest a harmonious expression of the Trinitarian wisdom of God at work in all things. He through whom all things were made, who naturally enlightens man as the word, should fittingly become human so as to show us our own dignity in the light of divine revelation, that we are creatures made in the image of God, returning to the Father in the grace of the word. Two other reasons are given on the side of human, uh, of human illumination, then. God illumines us in the mind through the word of God and predestines us to become sons of God by grace. Our, salva our, our eternal life is filial you might say, in a prelapsarian way even. It is fitting then that the eternal word should enlighten us and act so as to accomplish our predestination to filial adoption in and through a human life among us. So far we have considered very briefly the formal mystery of the Son made man as such, the Trinitarian implications of the filial mode of the Incarnation. However, we might also think in turn about the Trinitarian origins of the Incarnation and its Trinitarian effects, efficient and final causality. With regard to the first topic, Aquinas notes that the Incarnation is a work of the whole Trinity. We see this in the Annunciation scene in Luke 1, at least arguably in an implicit manner, since the one who is announced as the child of the Virgin is precisely the Son of the Most High, 
implying paternity in the Godhead, and his incarnation takes place when the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. In fact, the idea that the three persons are equally the co-simultaneous, or more properly speaking, the eternal authors of the one event of the incarnation, follows logically from the Cappadocian axiom that all works of the Holy Trinity ad extra are work of all three persons. Gregory of Nazianzus argued against the Neo-Aryan theologians that if the Son and Spirit partake truly and consubstantially in the power of the originate, unoriginate Father, then all that the Father does occurs through the begotten Son and the spirated Spirit. There's nothing that the Father does in creation or salvation that is not also by the Son and in the Spirit, precisely because they are each the one God. But by this same measure, this also means that all works of the Holy Trinity out, ad extra outside of God reveal Trinitarian actions as personal modal actions, actions of the one God engaged in by the three persons co-eternally in ways or modes that manifest their real personal distinction and unity. It is the Father who sends the Son into the world in the visible mission of the Incarnation, but it is also the Son who, in a filial mode, wills freely as God to enter the world as man in the womb of the Virgin, as one who is sent by the Father. Likewise, it is the Spirit who, in a spirated mode, wills the Son to become incarnate, and who freely wills to be sent from the Father and the Son into the world as the Spirit of Jesus. The visible missions of the Son and Spirit are manifestations of the distinct persons, but are also always works of the whole Trinity acting in unity. There is no opposition between these two ideas. On the contrary, the two ideas logically imply one another, since God is three distinct persons who are one in being in essence as well as will. What the persons of the Trinity do, they do always ever as distinct persons, and they do always ever as the one God. To speak of the incarnation of the Son in the terms of a coherent Trinitarian monotheism, then, is to speak of the incarnation of the Son as a revelation of the Father and the Spirit, even as, as, it is all, as it is the Son alone who is made man. The Trinitarian revelation of the Sonship of Christ has its most extensive implications, however, when we think about the operations of Christ as operations of the God human. Only the Son is human, and so only the Son acts in all his human life by operations that are both human and divine, so-called theandric actions. The Father and the Spirit do not act in a distinctively human way, only the Word made flesh acts humanly. But precisely because the Word is in the Father and the Spirit, sorry, but precisely because the Word is in the Father and the Spirit is in the Word, the operations that the Word made man performs as God, he performs only ever with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In fact, as Aquinas notes rightly, the person of the Son incarnate is more closely united ontologically to the Father and to the Holy Spirit than is his human nature to his divine nature, even though the human nature of Christ is truly united to his divine nature in his unique filial person. So consequently, the incarnation cannot be the occasion for a diremption that would occur in the ontology of the persons, as if a history of separation were to occur between the Father and the Son on the occasion of the incarnation of the Son in human nature. The reason for this is simply that the unity that pertains to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is uncreated and exists due to the unity of shared divine life and essence in its eternal, immutable simplicity. While the union of the human and divine natures in Christ is an ontological novum, 
something that comes to be in history. The new beginning of the incarnation does not pertain to the divine essence as such, as if God had to be human in order to be or to become God in a more, trinita- in a more perfect Trinitarian form. The operations of Christ then not only reveal the operative activity of the Father and the Spirit, but the very order of the persons in their mutual relations in life. The Word incarnate acts with the Father, but also acts always from the Father as his begotten Son. The Son works with the Spirit, but always also in the Spirit, the Spirit who proceeds from him as God and who rests upon him and operates directly in him as man. Therefore, the operative life of the Trinity is manifest in and through the human actions and words of Jesus. When Jesus heals, it is the Father who heals through his Son and in his Spirit. When Jesus teaches divine truth, it is the Son of the Father who reveals the truth of the Father with and from the Father, and who teaches in the Spirit of his Father, and in who doing so reveals the Spirit of truth who proceeds from himself. The truth of the Trinity in the flesh of Christ, a response to objections. We noted above that two modern objections commonly circulate that echo in various ways the ideas of Valentinus, albeit with strong distinctive differences as well. One was the objection of John Hick that a concrete singular incarnation of God in history delimits unjustly and arbitrarily the scope of salvation for all persons and the possibility of a universal knowledge of God available in various forms and ways through distinct religious traditions. The second objection was taken from theodicy. The human life we live of suffering and death is sufficiently obscure that no one religious tradition can claim to give final meaning or explanation to the mystery of human suffering. And instead, the various traditions offer partially incompatible but partially convergent (coughs) accounts of the final end of man and the eschatological resolution of the cosmos. To the first point, we may say the following. The human being learns through immediate sensory contact with singular entities and abstracts universal concepts from them. But each human person we relate to by knowledge and love is a singular entity encountered in the flesh. And this is true as well of ourselves to all others. We are a singular embodied instantiation of human nature, unique and like no other, each of us, in our distinctive subsistence as persons. There's only, as it were, a world of singular subsistent persons in the flesh. If the visible universe is in a sense crowned by human personhood as the most noble, spiritual, and complex entity in the visible world, and if human persons seek to come to know the unknown God, who is the universal author of all reality, through the medium of our embodied experience of singular existence, or as singular existence, then nothing could be more fitting, nothing could be more fitting for our knowledge of God than that he should take on a singular individual human nature so as to reveal who he is personally in his divine personhood and identity precisely in singular human flesh. This would entail that we could come to know God personally as we normally know one another, as individual embodied subjects in time and place, in the flesh, in word, gesture and touch, in conversatio. To hear God speak humanly to us, to watch the physical gestures of God, to touch the bleeding hands of God, There is nothing more dignified or noble or beautiful if this reality has truly come to pass. Second, regarding theodicy, we may in a sense concede the objector's central observation, at least under an aspect. The history of human wisdom traditions and religious practices 
and more ornate theoretical developments does concern itself, among other things, with responses to human suffering, death, and theodicy, as well as eschatology or narratives of cosmic resolution. This rich patrimony, far from being disdained, should stand as a testimony both to the natural human aspiration to understand our human condition in light of the absolute, whether this is an impersonal metaphysical ground of being, the gods, or the one and saving God. It also serves, excuse me, serves as a testimony to the human being's confusion, rightly recognized by Valentinus. We are beings who stand in need of illumination. What is tragic about modern religious agnosticism is the thought that the truth about the absolute is something we must either procure ourselves or that cannot be procured, since all appeals to revelation are in some way ruled out from the beginning. The first idea is presumptuous, while the second is despairing. The two attitudes typically coexist and self-reinforce. But it is more reasonable to conclude from a respectful consideration of the history of religions that we cannot provide a comprehensive examination, sorry, we cannot provide a comprehensive explanation for ourselves. And it is precisely for this reason that we do stand in need of a determinate revelation. As the First Vatican Council rightly stated in response to the conundrums of enlightenment skepticism, only God can illuminate us as to how to live through suffering and what its own resolution might really entail. If God has done this in the incarnation, however, then he has done so not only by taking human flesh, but by suffering in it as well and by glorifying his own human soul and body in the resurrection, giving us an entry point from which to understand our own eschatological horizon, final judgment, purgatory, heaven, and hell. These mysteries point us towards a Trinitarian resolution of the cosmos in which all human beings in ways known to God are invited into the communion of Trinitarian life. The acknowledgement of this revelation constitutes a liberation for human reason, not a delimitation. In the end, we may conclude, the flesh of Christ is the flesh of the Son of God, the bodily flesh of the one who suffered and died and is raised from the dead. In this state of glorified life, he can reveal the Father and the Holy Spirit now and forever, drawing us towards a resolution of our human condition in mystery and enigma, but also in bedrock truth. Salvation comes from the flesh of the Lord. It is that flesh that shines resplendent before all men in the crib, on the cross, and in the life to come. Thank you very much.